Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't live a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and joining me as always, say hi, Haley. Hi. Today, we are going to go over, I think that we um, finally received all the files and information that we're going to receive from all the different cities, and I'll go over that in a second, but I wanted to say a couple of thank yous. We have some new Patreons, Haley. Woohoo! Yeah, Susan, and I can't, I don't think I can say her last name. Susan Mingazzi, Mingazzi, and Precious Star. So thank you so much for joining us. And then I want to say hi to some of our active Instagram and Facebook people. Uh, Shakira, she had to refer her sister to listen to the podcast, so she had someone to talk about this case with. And feel fair, feel free to share that with anybody you want. Um, H Nichols twenty three for sticking with us. She said she was a little leery about this season because she was so used to how we were doing the stories from last you know since we started but she's glad that she stuck with it the abercast is another podcast and tc fox as always i hope you're still holding in there and like i started to say is i believe that we've received all the files that we're gonna receive in this case we have um out of all the places that i've contacted there's culver city police department the Ventura County Sheriff's Department, Los Angeles um, Civil and Criminal Cases, the Ventura County Coroner, Los Angeles City Coroner. I know there's like two more and I can't. We have the probate file. I'm pretty sure that we've kind of exhausted every single place that I could get information about this case. The one thing though that is eluding me is the newspaper articles. You mean like during that time, like how people reported about it? Yeah, and they make reference to it a couple times in several of the different files that we have that it was um, highly broadcasted on the news channels and on the newspaper. And I had a, in Thousand Oaks, that was another, Thousand Oaks was really helpful too in some of their case files. Um, The Thousand Oaks librarian had a retired librarian looking for the newspaper articles. He couldn't find one. I actually found one for through Newberry Park, oh, that Newberry Park Police Department too, I forgot. Um, through Newberry Park was a article that was written four years after they disappeared. But that's the only article I've gotten so far. And I think today I figured out why. The librarian was searching for May 4th and May 5th, and then she goes 10 days prior and 10 days after. So that would have taken her to May 14th. And I believe from going over all these files, I compiling all the files into kind of one so I could do the show today. I was, I believe that the first eyewitness account wasn't until May 15th. So you're saying maybe she's not looking at the correct like dates? Yeah, I think she looked up until the 14th. Cause you she, just can't find anything online by like Googling it? No, there's no. Now again, it's the 1979 thing. Yeah. They've gone back, like after like 1993, most newspapers are digitized and then they went back to the beginning and started scanning those. So they're not up to 1979. So it's sort of a no information bubble of 1979. And I think they offered, um, Ventura was really sweet, was like, if you come up here, there's really nice places to stay. 
you can spend all day Saturday going through the microfilm and then we're opening it on Sunday and you can do not get on Sunday. And I'm like, I, when would I do that? I, I just not like I have on the weekends I'm doing this. I, I don't know when I can spend a whole entire weekend looking through the newspaper files, but I'd really like to, because I'm wondering how much of the information that's passed down through the two different families is factual or if it's also from newspaper accounts. Yeah. But I mean, you can't really take newspaper accounts as factual necessarily. That's what I'm saying. That's my point. Exactly. Is that if you remember something from the past, you're like, Oh, I remember this happened. Is it because it really happened or because you read it in the newspaper at the time? I mean, I just recently did that actually today. I was saying that in the, during the last episode that she called him at work and I couldn't find where I found that information at because I didn't, she called him at work to say that her mom was ill and that she was wanted to fly home that night. And I thought that I had found it in my notes and I searched everywhere for it. And I'm like, why did I say that if I don't remember where I got it? I reread the article from that was printed four years after and it was in there. That's where I found it. So as I'm saying, like, you can't trust your memory from 40 years ago. Like, if I can't trust it from last week. Right. So how much of the information is is factual based on what really happened or based on what they read happened? And then if it's on what they read happened, I'm never going to believe a newspaper article. It's just not going to happen. Well, that's the kind of exciting thing about this in general, though. I feel like we're not going to ever know what happened just because it's stories passed down from so many families. I guess. I mean, I, I guess, but the, the, well, I think the police file is going to definitely helps the, this, what I'm telling people today is, was actually recorded in writing while it was happening. So it's a quite a bit more helpful. So again, I got police files and case records and case files from numerous agencies and I'll, and I can, I'll probably keep remembering what they are. And I wanted to talk mostly today about the, the witnesses. Well, not necessarily just the witnesses, but that's one of the biggest things I think that we need to talk about is the people that the detectives and the police officers initially assigned to the case. This is their handwritten record of what was going on. And the first witness that they spoke to, one of the first people that they spoke to was Denise Mortimer. And they talked to her on 514. And she had told them that the last time she had seen Debbie or the boys was about a week and a half prior. So she kind of puts her exactly at seeing her on the 4th or 5th of May. Before she was supposedly getting on a plane to visit her mom. Right. Okay. Um, and she said that she was, she, she called herself um, to the detective, Debbie's best friend ever, specifically. So you would assume they're very close. Right. And this is where it gets a little weird for me. Um, she's told the, the detective that they would go skating all the time with the kids she always ate dinner with them. Her address is actually the same address as Debbie, which they lived in a condominium or an apartment. And so her adri- her house number is different, but the street is the same. So I, they were neighbors, obviously. Yes, they lived really close. So I wanted to talk to her really bad because I figured her best friend ever, and I keep saying that in quotation marks in the air and no one can see me, but I find that really interesting that she would tell the investigator best friends ever. So she really claimed to be very, very close to Debbie, right? So I went on a search for her. And the fact that her last name is Mortimer, that's not a very common last name. I found her pretty quickly, fairly easily. Unfortunately, the reason I found her is because of her obituary. So she died, I believe, in 2011. um, But in her obituary, it lists her siblings. And then it lists all of her children. 
So she, which I believe she had seven or eight children. Wow. So I figured the children may not know about Debbie, but her sister certainly would. I mean, if one of my sister's friends went missing and the way, the way that it's, this has been told to us that she may have been murdered by her husband, allegedly, and buried somewhere. So that's kind of big news. With if her that's, two sons. With her two babies. Yeah. And I keep saying sons, but they were babies. They were three years old. They had just turned three. They were still toddlers. Yeah. So you would think that would be something that you would remember, right? Being the sister of someone's best right. friend. Right. Like yeah. I'm saying, like if my sister's friend went missing, I would know about it, particularly right. if under those circumstances. So... And, and obituaries are typically written in order of oldest to youngest when you're listing siblings. So I went to the first sibling listed, believing she would be the one closest in age to Denise Mortimer. So I, it took me a while to find her. I finally found her. I found her on Facebook, and I knew it was the right one because she was friends on Facebook with a girl who's listed in the obituary as Denise's daughter. So I was very fairly confident that I had the correct person. So I messaged both of them actually on Facebook and I waited like a week and I didn't hear anything back. So the stalker that I am, it lists on her Facebook what her job is. So I sent her an email at her job. It was pretty easy to figure out where her email oh would be. God. I didn't, well, what, how else am I supposed to reach her? She's not responding. The thing about sending messages on Facebook is you don't see them unless they're a friend of yours. Right. It goes to that other yeah. inbox or whatever. Right. And most yeah. people don't know to look there. And if I can, I'll ask someone to be friends with me and then send a message. Um, but I think, if anything, that probably just makes me look more creepy. I don't right. know. Not that I'm not creepy enough, but tracking down her job and sending her email yeah. on her job. But this is what kind of tripped me out. So I emailed her at her job and I, and I very in detail told her who I was and explained why I wanted the story and who Deborah was and what, who Denise was to Deborah. And it was probably like three paragraphs long. I mean, it wasn't super wordy, but I felt like I was detailed enough that I wouldn't look like some creepy stalker sending her a message. And she wrote back and she only wrote back one line that was, that name doesn't sound familiar. Denise never mentioned it. And you're confident that it's the right. Yeah, I'm very confident that it's the right person. Hmm. And then, so I thought, well, that, hmm, that's really weird. I can typically write to someone and say that I do a true crime podcast and they write back immediately. Like they're usually, I mean, how many people are really not interested at all in true crime? Not right. very many. And I thought it was really weird that she just wrote back. Oh, she never mentioned it. And I don't recognize that name, period. So I was like, okay, well, mm, that's weird. Like I, I want more. So I wrote back again, but I was very, uh, I didn't write a three paragraph thing again, but I said, well, maybe I have the wrong Denise Mortimer, did she live in Newberry Park on Paseo Esmeralda in 1979? And all she wrote back was, my sister moved from Newberry Park to Arizona sometime in 1979. So not confirming or denying. She's like giving you nothing. Yeah. That's why I haven't written back again. But I find that very odd. Why? I mean, I'm not saying it means anything other than didn't, did Denise not think that it was a homicide investigation? Like, would you... But like, even even then, your sister's best friend ever goes missing, regardless of 
homicide or not, it's like still a topic. I feel like it's just not as much of a topic. Do you know what I'm saying? If you don't talk to your sister often and your friend took off because she, you know, wanted to leave her husband, it wouldn't be something you would talk about. Now, if your friend went missing and was believed to have been murdered, that's something you're going to tell your family. I guess. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just, it was just a little red flag to me. It didn't mean a lot, but it was a little bit of red flag. And it was, I kind of wish she would write me back again. I mean, I did tell her the name of the podcast and she has my name. So maybe she's listening and she'll write me back to clarify or write me back to tell her off, tell me off for sending an email to her work or she'll just say, I was not close to my sister. I don't know. I just think that she would have written back and said, you know, I really was not close to my sister. It's not. If something like that would have happened, I wouldn't have known. I might not have known. Yeah. Yeah. She was not helpful at all. Let's put it that way. She was not helpful at all. Yeah. Another person that they spoke to was a lady named Carol Buell or Bull. And it was spelled really weird. B-O-U-L-L-E. And she claimed to be a lifelong friend of Deborah's and had recently spent time with her. She said she knew of no marital problems, which, by the way, is a a theme with all the people that they talk to. And they talk to a lot of people. Not one of them could say a negative thing about John, a negative thing about Debbie, or a negative thing about their marriage. But that's not super uncommon. It's not super uncommon, but the people who are claiming to be the closest to them are saying that they're they're more shocked by it than not surprised by it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. so anyway, she had said that she had spent time with her recently and that there were no marital problems or any possible cause for Debbie's disappearance. She stated though, that it would be very, unchar- she wanted to make a point that it would be very uncharacteristic of Debbie to not have regular contact with her parents. So she's like insinuating, like maybe she didn't just run away. Yeah. Something. <laughs> if uh, she ran away, she'd still be contacting her family. Right. Um, in the the next sort of information that comes up in the the different files is that John told the investigators this was during I mean they talked to him numerous times like I don't have all the specific dates of the times that they talked to him but they did talk to John more than anyone else and at different increments they said that John told the de- investigator that Debbie talked to Frank a man named Frank Rocco who turns out to be um, a couple that was Frank and Mar- Marlene Rocco were really good friends with a the couple. They had known them for like six years. But he said he claims that Debbie asked Frank Rocco how a person would cut all ties in his or her life. And what's really weird about all the files that I have, John says that happens. And then they show the police talking. There's a portion where they talk to Frank and Marlene Rocco, but they never ask Frank Rocco about that statement. But John claims that he did ask that. And I guess Frank Rocco told him later that she had asked him that. And then during one interview, uh, this was a little bit further out, that John appeared very nervous and was concerned something might have happened to Debbie. He said he believes that she's being held against her will, but he didn't give the, the investigator any reason why he believed that. He added that they have, and this is what I find really weird. It was a, a quote. He added that they have a very good marriage and doesn't understand why Debbie would leave him. I don't know what that means when someone refers to something in present tense. Well, usually they say that they catch a lot of people when they start talking about the somebody, that person in past tense. Like we had a good marriage. That would be a red flag for them. And he didn't do that. He was using the word have. Yeah. That we have a very good marriage and he doesn't understand why she would leave him. Yeah. And then Diane's 
Diane, who was John's sister, she had called in and and I don't think they went and talked to her. I think she called in and told the investigators that she just wanted to vouch for the fact that they had a very good marriage, that she believed that they really loved each other. And then the investigators went looking for a lady named Joanne Marin, who was the babysitter. And she had last babysat the twins in April, right the month before. And she had no information. She said that Debbie hadn't mentioned to her that she was leaving. And she um, also felt that they, that what she witnessed was that they were, it was a good marriage, that there was nothing, she had nothing negative to say about them or in all the instances that she's in had interactions with them. And then the police talked to a lady named Anne Borquest. And as I say that, um, this Joanne Marin, Anne Borquest, Carol Bowell, Bowl, and Frank and Marlene Rocco, I have searched up and down for these people. I have a couple more messages out to a few different Carol and Carol Ann and Carol, Carolyn Bowles. And then, um, I believe I found Frank Rocco and I, I, I think he died in 2010. And then this next lady, her name was Amber Quest. And I did find her on Ancestry because I had her address. And so I found the directory with her and everything. It was really easy to trace her. She passed away also. So it's really frustrating because so many of the witnesses are gone now. But she said that she was a friend with them for a long time and that her and Debbie had worked together at the Santa Monica, Hosp- Santa Monica Hospital, but she um, hadn't seen her in 10 months. So they had a ton of eyewitness interviews or friend interview friend interviews, but none of them were particularly helpful. And there was also, um, I should mention, because it was so publicly broadcast, which is driving me crazy that I can't find it. So if we have any listeners that live in Ventura County and California, Ventura County, California, and feel like spending any time at, at, at the local libraries, yeah, feel free to, to let me know. Cause I would love to see some of those articles and I really don't know that I will have a day that I can give up to spend down in, um, Ventura looking for old newspaper articles because I don't, I don't know that's going to tell us really anything. I mean, if it was, if it was going to make or break this case or, or clear, clarify something really, really important, I would do it. I would take a day off and do it, but I, it's more out of interest. I wanted to read the first original articles. Another person who had called in was someone named Cindy Kidwell, which I don't know who that is. I've searched and searched. So I need to ask Tyler Kidwell. Who is John's nephew. nephew. Who, by the way, I spoke to. That I should point that out. I spoke to John's nephew, and that'll be on the next episode. And I'm supposed to speak to his dad, who was Ron Kidwell, John's brother. So that'll be our next episode. But anyways, uh, this Cindy, Cindy Kidwell called in, and I, I, I need to find out who she is. And she said that um, she had friends calling her and saying that they saw Debbie walking down Wilshire Boulevard. Um, another person had seen her at the beach in Santa Monica. And that someone else had seen them getting into a car. Are the boys with her every time someone says um, this? Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. One lady had called in and said that the only reason she recognized Debbie was because of the boys. She saw two boys in bib overalls with her. Interesting. And then um, 
On May 25th, this is one of the things I was kind of waiting for when we were trying to get all this information, was they searched the apartment with John's consent and they found that um, things had been, and I, I may have mentioned this in the last one, but that the appropriate articles for a short trip were missing from the apartment. I don't know what those articles would be, toothbrushes, things like that. Mm-hmm. And they did not find, they looked specifically for her medicine or medicine wasn't there. And a suitcase was gone from what John said, a suitcase was gone and they found the diary. I think I mentioned the diary in the last episode. Did I mention the diary in the last episode? Yeah, but we were trying to, the family was trying to get it so that we could see it. And there's still, well, we hit a block wall on that a little bit. Originally they were going to give a copy of the diary to the Cronin family, Debbie's family, but a um, higher up than who we were talking to, they had to get permission and they said, yes, they can have a copy of the diary, but only if the detectives um, currently assigned have to read the entire diary, and I guess it's huge, front to back, and make sure there's no evidentiary value, value to it. Before they can even get just copies? Before they'll re- release any information from the diary. They have to make sure that there's nothing of evidentiary value to it. That so sucks. They, said, they swear they're going to do it. So. Because oh, you mentioned that she it was recorded somewhere you read it somewhere that she wrote a bunch like her entries were super 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 long yeah and then the days before she went missing they were they were really short, short and it looked like different handwriting yeah yeah you said they were gonna try to test it or something well and the other thing about the diary too this is drives me crazy that i that we can't see it is debbie at one point wrote the word escape in her diary and I don't know if she wrote the word escape associated with a story about a hair salon. She writes about a hair salon where she went to get a a perm and they didn't do a very good job on her perm. And she called them crumble, bumble, shit asses. Whoa. That's so, a phrase. It's <laughs> a phrase. And she, somewhere around that entry, she wrote the word escape. Just like randomly? That's a point we don't know. Oh, you don't have specifics. We don't have, we can't see it. So we don't, and it was, it was enough that the detective um, wrote it down that she wrote the word escape. And then he wrote about the, the hair salon, but we can't, without seeing it, we don't know if she wrote that word separately or as part of something to do with being upset about her hair. But I thought that was a really interesting part of her diary too. And we're still supposed to get copies of it. I just, no way of knowing when. The other thing I wanted to just touch on was uh, her epilepsy was there's so much more to epilepsy than that I realized and what it causes, what it means to her. And so I talked to a doctor, which we will have on the, not the next episode, but the episode after that, because that's important. I think that we kind of wrap this all together and kind of tell both sides of the opportunity that there could have been for Debbie to walk away. Or the opportunity of the alleged husband being involved in their disappearance. So I talked to the doctor a lot about epilepsy, the fact that she had the grandma seizure, and about the medication she's on. That she wasn't taking. That she wasn't. And the fact that she wasn't taking it, which plays a really big part in in sort of looking at both sides of this. So we're going to talk to the doctor in another episode. But the other files that we had found, and I mentioned in the last episode, is that and like you just said, is the detectives were really, really concerned about the fact that the last three entries were different. 
the entire diary speaks very highly of her husband and of her kids and of her life in general. Um, there isn't anything negative about anything. She doesn't mention any other men or give any indication of any other men. She also doesn't write in her diary about going to see her mom being ill. She was an avid writer in her diary about her life. So that's another thing that was just a red flag to the to the detectives was that diary. And hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll be able to look at it ourselves and, and find out. Um, we did find out that there was never any report of domestic violence. I checked with all the different police agencies that would be in their area and I couldn't find, I mean, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I couldn't find any case files regarding any domestic violence. The Frank and Marlene Rocco, the ones I mentioned earlier that John said, she asked Frank Rocco if how a person would kind of disappear Mm -hmm. when the police finally did interview Frank and Marlene. He said that they had known him for six years that he last saw Debbie on April 20th, 1979, but he heard her and the twins' voices on the 28th. So we have someone else who 100% heard them up to six days before the last day that anyone talked to them. What before. does he mean, heard them? He was on the phone with John, and he could hear the kids and her talking in the background. Oh, okay. So there's always been some question about John reporting them missing the next day. The police report clearly says that he dropped them off at the airport on May 4th and he called the family on May 5th and reported them missing on May 5th. There's always been contention about that. There's always been on Debbie's side of the family saying that there was a lapse of five days where he didn't report them missing. So the fact that the 28th of April, 29th, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, um, Frank Rocco was the only other person to say that he had heard or seen them, which he only heard them on April 28th, which was what, six days, five days before they disappeared. Yeah. Ish. And there was no mention at that time of Debbie having to leave or them. There's no mention of it basically is what he was saying. Mm -hmm. And that he was very, he said that he was very close to them Felt they would have said something if she was going anywhere like on vacation or something. And he said he brought up her medication. He was very concerned that if her medication wasn't there, then it, then she went somewhere voluntarily, that she would have taken her medicine with her. They did extensive research I found in another file. They did research of the bank accounts. And although they don't mention whether you pulled out the $450, they do mention that a check was missing and that there was normal expenditures. So there was no no red flags to their bank account of her being somewhere else or of them having monetary problems that would have caused something to happen or them to be fighting over money, Mm -hmm. anything like that. This Frank Rocco person also is the one who informed the police that Debbie was really close to a maintenance man. I think we bring that up in the very first episode with... Jocelyn mm-hmm. says that her family had always heard that there was a chance that Debbie took off with a maintenance man. But with the two kids? That's what that's what I'm saying. It's very weird. Because they had said um, earlier, I guess, uh, John had mentioned something about a maintenance man. But then Frank Rocco brought it up again. And so the police went to his the, the on-site boss at the apartment complex and... And he said that that he didn't have anybody on his payroll 
based on the description of this maintenance man they keep talking about. But he advised the investigator to speak to the painting contractor. And his name was a man named Joe Harper. And he said that he had a former employee that matched that description of the maintenance man, which was the description was white male, long blonde hair, 5'10", 160 pounds, and very, very handsome. And supposedly Debbie was close to him or knew him. But by former employee, did he give them a like date? Like, yeah, he left on blah, 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 blah. Well, see, and this is where it gets confusing. And there's so many confusions about dates. It drives me crazy. This Joe Harper said that that sounds like a former employee by the name of Michael Cuddle. And that's C-A-U-D-L-E. And that he had fired the subject. And that Cuddle had... Um, he had understood that Cuddle had moved to North Carolina. So then the police went and talked to his brothers and they ran a report on him. And the brothers said that they didn't know who Debbie was by name, but once she was described to them, they were like, yeah, 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 now I know who that is. But here's the thing. My brother moved to North Carolina four months ago. But the police did a record search on Michael Cottle. He had been arrested on a stolen vehicle and stolen properties charge, a felony charge in April of 1979. So he would have been in jail when she went missing? He wasn't in jail yet. He had been arrested but released pending trial. I believe that's the way it went. He was not under arrest, but he was being convicted or they sought after for a felony charge of um, stolen property. And this all happened in Ventura County in April of 1979. Hmm. I find him interesting. I find him very interesting. And I can't find him anywhere. And I don't know if it's because in the files I found, there's three different spellings of coddle. So we don't know if he ever actually went to jail. We don't know if he ever actually went to jail. And he was in, he, he was not in Ventura County they never spoke to him regarding Debbie. So he could have been in North Carolina. Could have been in North Carolina. <laughs> Technically. And the only, they only spoke to his brothers. They never spoke to him. Hmm. That's weird. Which is really, that's really weird to me because if he was already, like he's a criminal to a point and you would think they would be like, okay, let's, let's go talk to this guy. Let's find out what's up. Yeah. And they didn't. And I have the two brothers names. I thought it would make it easier to find him. And it has not made it any easier to find him. So um, the rest of the the file is pretty much endless um, speculation of people calling in. I they even um, there's very few mentions of of John's brother Ron, the one that I'm going to talk to. There's a couple times where they call and check in with him, like, "Hey, have you heard from her?" Have you, you know stuff like that. Um, there's a ton of sightings again one sighting was uh they saw them in torrents on a breezy day like i don't get why but it's just people really just wanting to be a part of it the big news though that i found very very interesting and i know that you're gonna find this interesting you're probably gonna shit all over it is on june 26 1979 john submitted to a polygraph test so he was like yeah give me the polygraph test i didn't kill my wife yeah the quote is Subject was truthful in all of his statements. So he passed the polygraph test. Passed the polygraph test. See, I thought you were going to crap all over it because I thought you were going to say, well, 
people pass polygraph tests all the time. I don't necessarily know that they pass polygraph tests all the time, but if you've talked yourself into believing that you didn't do something, that's your truth. You know what I mean? Right. But the thing is, is, is this is my viewpoint on a polygraph. Like I'm not going to take a polygraph as like an absolute end all. Oh, he had nothing to do with their disappearance. Like I mean, there's a, a reason why you can't use them in court. Right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that, but what I am going to say is that the average Joe in 1979 would have been afraid of polygraph test. Why do you say that? Well, because I think now we know in 2019 how unreliable a polygraph test is. We we get that now with science, the fact that we understand how polygraph tests work now. But back in 79, I don't think it would have been common knowledge that someone who was lying would be able to pass a polygraph test. Yeah. And he chose, to, he didn't have to do the polygraph test. He chose to do it. Did he choose to do it because he thought he could convince himself enough to pass it? I don't believe that he knew enough about polygraph test to not be terrified of that. Yeah. Unless you were absolutely certain that you didn't do anything. Yeah. So that's what I mean when I keep saying that every time I turn around, there's a different, I feel differently about this every single time. And again, I'm not going to put a ton of importance on a polygraph test because I can't knowing what I know now. But I do believe that someone in 1979, an average Joe, he's not a scientist or anything, would have been terrified to take a polygraph test. But he passed it. Yeah. But didn't didn't you read somewhere that the police kind of really like suspected him? Like thought for sure that he did it, just didn't have the evidence on him. Yeah, yes, he was the prime suspect. Allegedly, he was the prime su- suspect. But I'm so curious sure. why they think that. Well, I think they think, and this is the things I want to ask his brother. They say his story changed a few times. I haven't found where his story changed, other than I'm confused by the fact that it's the family always thought he waited a week to report them missing. But we're not certain that we don't know about the I don't know at that, all. No, I don't know that. And the fact that he was, he had been in prison for narcotics. And to be honest, I mean, I think there's a, a few things. The husband, first of all, the husband is always the first suspect when a woman goes missing. The boyfriend and the husband are most likely the culprit in, in a, the disappearance of a woman. So that played a part in it. The fact that he did have a prison record. The fact that some of his stories changed, I believe that he had said that he had pulled out $450 and then another time it was $200. So I think a lot of that had to do with it. And I think even to be honest, I think there's things we'll never find out that are in the different police files. We're never going to get a copy of the sheriff's department. That's not going to happen. So I think there's probably things that they held back that we don't know. And who knows? The other thing that I wanted to talk about really quick this week, and and this is just another indication of why I get so confused, because I'm with Debbie's family. I don't believe that she would have left and not had any further contact with her family. I do believe that. But is that enough for me to completely condemn her husband for murdering her, like allegedly murdering her? I don't, I don't know if that's enough for anyone, really. And they believed that there's not a person that I've, that I've spoken to a person that I've read about 
that has ever that ever thought that not only that he couldn't hurt his wife, but that he really couldn't hurt his children. And Debbie's family even agrees with that, that he was not the person that could have hurt his own children. And the one thing that the Cronin family has held on to is that John mentioned during one phone conversation where he was going in and out, and we now know that was heroin. His drug of choice was heroin, and the grandmother suspected it even back then, that during a conversation where he kept going, zoning, like kind of falling, drifting in and out. Later in life. Later in life. This is later in life. Sometime between two th- before 2008. He told Debbie's mother that at least we still know the boys are alive, right? We talk about that in the yeah. first episode. So that Curtin family has always held on to that. So they knew that he committed suicide in 2008. I confirmed in the last episode that he committed suicide in 2008. I'm not going to read the entire suicide note because, frankly, it's none of our business. And secondly, John was in the advanced stages of hepatitis C when he passed away. He was very ill and probably in a lot of pain. When he wrote his suicide note, he wrote it on a paper plate and pencil and... He writes it to his brother, Ron. He talks in the beginning about his illness and how he's feeling. And then he goes on to describe his financial situation and what he wants done with his finances and his house and things like that. But he ends the suicide note with this. If my boys ever show up, please tell them I'm not who Debbie said I was. So almost like he's saying they're all alive it's, and she's talking like he she ran away from him and she's telling the boys like, that's an how awful he person. signed that's what it sounds like that's how he ended his suicide note and the thing that gets me in these are okay so i'm not a psychologist and i'm not gonna even pretend to be one but here's the thing if he believes debbie told those boys anything about him then he doesn't believe that she's dead either because he could she could have told them anything about him at the age of three that they would remember that many years later right. yeah yeah secondly he doesn't say my sons, which to me is a little bit of a distance when you say my sons. He says my boys, if my boys ever show up, which is a closer endearment than son, the word son is. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know that I agree, but I understand what you're saying. So he's ending a suicide note. Is he ending a suicide note claiming his innocence again? Or is he truthful and honestly believes they went on to survive and live a life where she had the opportunity to tell them anything about him and what could they what could if everybody looking at their life acted like it was so perfect and their marriage was so wonderful and they were so in love what was he so afraid that she would tell her boys yeah i don't know i have no idea makes it more complicated doesn't it yeah, it's interesting for sure. It twists and turns everywhere I look. If you know anything regarding the disappearance of Deborah Jackson or Joshua Kidwell, please contact Detective Greg Cadman with the Ventura County Sheriff's Department at 805-654-2324. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. Be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost. 